All right, guys, if you'll take your Bible and over one final time to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we're coming to the, the finish line of our study through this great New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul. We're coming to his final words that happen to include two of the most well-known verses in Philippians. Uh, and I'm referring to what he'll say in verse 13 and then also in verse 19. Uh, so even though what we have in this passage this morning are just sort of the closing words to the letter, there these aren't entirely verses that you should just blaze by as his as his uh, see you laters. Because um, I, I think there are some important things for us to think about here and benefit from. So I hope you were able to read the, the what's wrong with this table right here? I just want to know. That's weird. My goodness. Um, but have me. As I, anyway, um, I hope you were able to read the passage before you came. I'll try to put it in the group me so you can do that. But in either case, uh, let's read it together. And then I'll, I'll uh, lay out what I'd like us to see and take away from it. Verses 10 through the end of the letter is our passage. So Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with, uh, with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Well, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And so we ask as we come to this final passage of this letter, would you once again give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see in these words? And would you give us minds to, to comprehend it clearly, hearts to embrace that truth that we see and understand, wills then to uh, align our lives and our actions in accordance with what we, what we see. Um, give me the help that I do need to teach this morning and give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Uh, in the word. I ask in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. As we think about uh, these final words to, to uh, this letter, here's how I want to think through it. The theme of our passage today is clearly, it clearly revolves around the fact that the Philippian church had given, had given generously to Paul, that they had given him a financial help. And so basically this is Paul 
saying thank you for that. That's what before he before he ends the letter, I need to say thank you for for helping me financially like that. But in doing that, he gives us some things to consider. So if you're taking notes, I want to I want to consider four things in it. First, we're going to just look at what he says generally in verse 10. He just introduces something he's going to flesh out with more specificity in the later verses. But in verse 10, uh, I think Paul describes uh, generosity and commitment. Generosity and commitment. That That's just, um, he's not just thanking them for their gift to him, but but he's he's thanking him in verse 10 and for their st- the steadfastness of their support to him. Generosity and commitment. That's verse 10. And second, in verses 11 through 13, we're going to think about what think through what Paul teaches us about gratitude with contentment. Gratitude with contentment. I, I, he famously tells uh, them and us that he has learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances. So we're going to we're going to think about that contentment um, that he that he displays there. And then third, in verses fourteen through twenty, Paul's going to return to their their gifts that they gave him, and he helps them understand better. Giving with confidence, giving with confidence, and here I, I think Paul is telling them we're gonna we're gonna hold our place here in a little while and flip over to Second Corinthians. I think what he's talking about here is the same thing that he he talks about in Second Corinthians eight and nine, um, and I think if that's the case, I think he what he says there will help us understand with a little more clarity what he's saying here in Philippians four, and then finally in verses twenty one to twenty three. Paul sends them greetings in Christ Jesus and from Caesar's household. Greetings in Christ Jesus and from Caesar's household. So there's more than initially meets the eye. So let's dive in and take a closer look. Now let's think first about the point that he begins in verse 10, generosity and commitment. So look at verse 10 again with me. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Okay, we're not going to, spend a ton of time on this point because really this is just sort of a transition type sentence into the more specificity that he's going to show a little later on. It's just a springboard into this final topic, which is their generosity toward him. He's going to have a lot more to say about that in the later verses. But just in this opening or this transitioning verse, verse 10, there's a couple things I want to note. If you look carefully at it, keeping the whole of what he says in mind, you can see how uh, Paul is ending this letter uh, in, in the way that he ends it. He's coming back to some of the things that he mentioned at the very beginning of the letter. So he's sort of ending it like he began it. So remember how he began the letter. He said, uh, and you can look there or just listen, in, back in chapter 1, verse 3. So this his very sort of opening words, he says, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So so likewise here, um, in, the, in the end of the letter, he's, Paul is commending the Philippians for their constant commitment to him, just like he said at the beginning of the letter. What he's here calling concern, their concern and their commitment to Paul and his, his, his mission, that has been the hallmark of this Philippian church toward Paul from the very beginning. But he's not exactly saying the same thing here because he, he makes it clear in this passage at the end, he's talking about something particular because it almost he, he almost makes it sound like there was an interruption in their uh, in, in their concern for him. He says, you have revived your concern. 
all right? But it's he wants to sort of correct what he says there a little bit because he, he's going to say, I know you were concerned for me, but it, it had been interrupted in some way because he says you've you've now revived it. And and why why did it why was there some sort of interruption there? You had no opportunity, he says. That's what he says in verse ten. So what's he talking about? In chapter one, in that, in chapter one verse three that I read just a minute ago, it it it, it that that commitment sem- seemed to be uninterrupted from the beginning. Your your partnership in the gospel from the first day unto now, no interruption. And so here it seems like at least in some sense, it had been interrupted. And he's going to talk later in this passage that he's primarily talking about their financial support for him. He says that at the end of verse 15, that he's talking about the matter of giving and receiving. And he repeatedly refers to their gift. So the primary thing he's talking about in this passage is, is the gift of money. Okay, that's that's the particular thing that got interrupted uh, or that they had revived. And we're going to say more about that in just a minute. But for our purposes here, just in in verse 10, um, I want to point out that money and financial help wasn't all that they gave to him. Okay, so it's in a a later point, we're going to we're going to make more connection to what he says in Second Corinthians eight and nine about this financial gift to him uh, that I think is instructive. But go ahead and hold your place here and flip over to Second Corinthians uh, eight. And uh, you can just keep a, a, a mark there because we're going to come back to it in a minute. But when you get to 2 Corinthians 8, again, I think he's talking here about the same uh, gift that he's talking about in Philippians 4. Um, you see in verse 1 of, of 2 Corinthians 8, he's talking about the churches of Macedonia. Well, that's where Philippi was, Right. And notice what he says in verse verses four and five, that they were begging us earnestly for for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, what did this what did this uh, relief and this gift look like in verses four and five? Well, they gave themselves. Is this not as we expected? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What that's just saying is. What, what Paul is commending them for is that when they, when, when they helped Paul, they didn't just give money to help. They gave themselves. And we've seen Paul talk about that earlier in the letter, in, in, in the, the physical sending of a man, Epaphroditus, to come help Paul in his ministry. And the point is, is simply this, and you, you can hold your place there and go back to Philippians 4 for a minute. The, the point is simply this. Paul is commending them. Why? Because that their commitment to him, their concern for him, whenever at all possible, was accompanied by intentional outward acts of generosity and physical expressions of the kindness that they wanted to give him. Now, that, that, that leaves the question of why. That there, was, there was some sort of interruption to their help in this way of Paul, such that it had to be revived at some point, and we're not simply told why there was an interruption, but at the very least it communicates to us that it was the perpetual practice of the Philippian church that as soon as and as often as they were made aware of a need that Paul had, they did whatever it took to help Paul um, in his ministry, whether that was through people, the sending of Epaphroditus, and he almost died in that effort, or through money, and as we'll see in just a minute, when, when, when it was money, it was sacrificially so. It was sacrificially so. 
I said that verse 10 is really just sort of a transition verse to springboard into the specifics that Paul really wants to thank them for. But what he says in verse 10 here um, really confirms that, that he's commending the Philippians for living out very Christ-like love and commitment toward Paul. That was always expressed in self-giving, like looking for opportunities to give to Paul. As Paul put it earlier in the letter uh, in chapter 2, that they were considering others more significant than them than themselves. That's a good admonition to us. It's a, it's a simple one. There's nothing complicated about that. It's pretty direct, but it's a good admonition to us because we need these admonitions in Scripture because too often, and I'm saying this to you because I know myself, our tendency when we see someone else have a need, our initial tendency is often to take the path of least resistance. It's just a leave our offer of help at kind words. I'm praying for you. And that's not, that's not a cop-out. Pray for them. That's the most powerful thing we can do. But often, we just leave it at words. It's like what James is talking about, which we're going to study next semester, uh, the book of James. He says, when you see someone in need, don't just say, be warm and filled. Help them. Physical expressions of generosity. And I think the, the, the Philippian challenge, the Philippians challenge us to, to love our neighbor like this in sacrificial and in tangible ways as often as we have the opportunity. But as I said, Paul has more specific things that he wants to end this letter on, and it's specifically the monetary gift that they brought him to him through Epaphroditus. So Paul first wants to thank them for that gift, but also to express gratitude with contentment. So think about that with me for a second. Look at verses 11 through 13. These verses include not only some of the most well-known words of Philippians, but also for a lot of Christians in the whole New Testament. But look at what Paul is trying to do. Um, I'm speaking generally here about verses 11 through 13. Um, He's trying to say thank you for their gift, but look at where his stress continually lies. We're going to point something here and something later. He'll say in verse 11, I didn't need the gift. I didn't need it. And if you look down at verse 17, Paul even says, I wasn't seeking it. I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't looking for that gift. It's not exactly the way that you want to always say thank you to people. I mean, in verse 14, he's going to say, well, it was nice of you. It was, it was kind of you to, to do this, to give to him. And he's going to, and he'll gratefully remark, though, on the, on, the, on the manner in which they give in the later verses. But in verse, verses 11 through 13, it's, I didn't need it. I didn't need the gift. Why is Paul stressing this? If his point is to say thank you, why is he making a big deal of, I didn't need it, I wasn't looking for it? Why? Well, for, I think for a couple of reasons. First, it was to protect his reputation. Um, in, that, in that day, speakers, orators, even, um, even preachers of the gospel, he's already mentioned some of those in chapter 3, look out for the dogs. I mean, they would the speakers, orators, even preachers would often speak and charge extraordinary fees. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, for their services. And it was clear that they were in it just for the money. And so Paul most definitely didn't want to be lumped in that category as just a, a, a preacher who's going around and receiving money from different people. So he wanted to put it in writing that he wasn't seeking the gift that they gave. He didn't need it for his own sake. And that was the second reason I believe he mentions it here is, 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 is to teach them about contentment. 
that he's not just saying these things merely to protect his reputation, but he truly meant it. He didn't seek their gift, nor ultimately did he need it, because, as he says in verse 11, he had learned in whatever situation he was to be content. Whether that, according to verse 12, meant having plenty or scarcity, or and the reason was because, according to verse 13, he can do all things according to Christ who gives him strength in every circumstance. Now, there are three things that I want to, in, in this train of thought, that I want to draw your attention to. One thing from each verse that I think is worth at least noting. The first thing is the fact that in verse 11, he says that he has learned the secret to being content. Learned it. He learned it. What does that tell you? That contentment is not something that happens automatically to you when you become a Christian. He learned it. That takes time. It takes time. It takes life circumstances. It takes not seeing what you're made of. It's, it, it's about the time uh, over time, seeing the faithful provision of the Lord over and over again in whatever circumstances you find yourself and knowing more and more intimately his goodness and his sovereign providence over your life. That takes time. That takes time. Uh, and over time, you learn contentment. The word that Paul uses here for con- this translated contentment, it's used a lot. In, in other literature outside the Bible at the time. And you can think about um, the culture in which Paul was living and Stoics and Stoicism. That, that word that he used, contentment, was often carried the idea of self-sufficiency and, and, and self-reliance, self-supporting, independent, able of oneself. Like that's the idea outside the Bible that that often carried. And in a sense, Paul meant that because he used this word um, because he was saying he didn't he didn't receive their gift because he was in some need like I need this from them but it wasn't self sufficiency per se because he's going to say in verse thirteen his sufficiency was in Christ but the second thing in addition to the fact that you have to learn contentment the second thing I want to point out from verse twelve is the fact that Paul didn't just say he knew how to face shortage and hunger. He actually says he he knew how to face abundance. He knew how to face abundance. I uh, that uh, that you know we just sometimes fly through that. That's actually the only word that he uses twice in this passage. Notice at the beginning of, of verse twelve, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, they, they translated one uh, to abound and the other abundance, but it's literally the same exact word in both places. It's the only word he uses twice. Paul, and it's almost as if Paul knew that abundance was a bigger danger to a Christian than need. Abundance is. Like, you should... You should think about having to face abundance. Like, think about it. I, I'm, I'm, it's not something I should just unthinkingly live in. I have to face and I have to think as a Christian about what do I do with this abundance that I have, right? Paul, Paul repeatedly talked about the danger of abundance. And he would later say in, the, in later in his life in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He, he could have said one by name, and he did later in Second Timothy, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Second Timothy 4.10. Listen carefully to this. This is something that John Calvin said, and it's really insightful. Um, it's a little stilted in the way he says it, so just listen carefully. He who knows how to use present abundance soberly and temperately with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything um, whenever it may please the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to his need, and is also not puffed up, he says, that man has learned to excel and to abound. And that is an excellent and rare virtue and much greater than the endurance of poverty. To, to know how to abound and to know how to abound uh, in a non-idolatrous way, prepared to part with it whenever God desires, to give to your brother who is in need, um, and it's not puffing you up. He said, that is a greater grace than knowing how to live in poverty, right? But these things are, that's something from verse 12 to just to, to just think about. Like, not only do you have to learn contentment, you have to learn contentment even in times of abundance, especially in times of abundance. These things are grounded, though, in the third thing in verse 13, which is, his assurance that he can do all these things through Christ who strengthens him. That verse gets claimed for a lot of different things. You know it. Um, but what what in 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 the context, what is this promising? In its context, what is this promising? It is promising that Christ will be sufficient for you in in every circumstance. And in every circumstance you can be content in him. That 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 has nothing to do with athletic ability or anything else, right? This has to do with in hunger or in abundance, I can be content in Christ and he will give me the strength to do that. Um, what Paul says here is so important. Discon- I, I, I need to hear this. Discontentment in both poverty and abundance. Discontentment in, in, in each um, have at their root an idolatry of money and of material comfort and a belief that it would fix whatever it is they believe needs fixing, right? And it's subtle. It's subtle. So how do you fight it? How do you fight against discontentment? Um, well, first of all, you get to know Christ and his word, Behold Christ in his word and know that he is for you what he has shown himself to be for all of his disciples. But second of all, you do it by what Calvin suggested you do, which is in fact what we see the Philippians do in verses 14 to 20, and that is they gave it away. Giving with confidence. And we not only learn contentment by looking at Jesus Christ, we learn contentment by by being generous with what we've been given. And that is, even if we've not been given a whole lot, as we're going to say in the Philippians. 
So giving with confidence. Paul begins this section in verse 14, thanking them genuinely for their gift to him. And he talked about their kindness to him. Now look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, and what he means by beginning of the gospel is when I first came to you with the gospel. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, I already said I'm persuaded that what he's talking about here uh, is something that he also wrote to the Corinthians about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And if that's right, um, I, I, I think it, it confirms what, what uh, Paul has been, is saying here. Because in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is, wasn't just collecting money for himself. He was trying to give to the church in Jerusalem. But the church in Philippi was in Macedonia. And uh, so go back to 2 Corinthians 8. And I want to I compare what he says in 2 Corinthians 8 to what he says here. Paul mentions the contributions that he had received from the churches in Macedonia. That would be Philippi. And uh, we'll look at the opening verses of chapter 8. And, and this is what I mean about giving it away even when you don't have a whole lot. He says in verses 1 to 3 of, of 2 Corinthians 8, We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That would include Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means and beyond their means. And then it was the verses we read earlier. That's that that's a that's an incredible passage just to just marinate in for a little while. Right? They didn't have very much. Paul describes their situation as extreme poverty. I mean, words have meaning. Extreme poverty. Words also have meaning when he says they not only gave according to their means, they gave beyond their means. Beyond their means. That means when it doesn't add up exactly. I don't know how this is going to work, but I feel like this is what we should do. That's what they did. So when Paul in Philippians 4 is thanking them for their gift, that's how they gave. Amid affliction, affliction, affliction. That's, that's a hard word. Out of extreme poverty, beyond their means begging to help like this begging now still hold your place here because we're going to come back to chapter 9 of 2nd Corinthians but look at how he continues in Philippians 4 in verse 17 he reiterates that he wasn't seeking this gift uh, from them for himself as much as he he wanted the, the spiritual fruit that their generosity would exhibit he says in verse 18, he, has, he, he, he is well supplied. He, 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 doesn't, he has all that he needs. And then he makes this other favorite promise in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is one of the, the, the uh, prosperity preachers love to talk about. Um. But I think that if we compare what he says here to what he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, 
still building what he told the Corinthians in chapter 8 about what and how the Philippians gave, he shed some light on this promise in Philippians 4, 9, and he teaches us something about giving with confidence, even when we're giving beyond our means. Flip back one more time to 2 Corinthians 9 this time. 2 Corinthians 9. And, and in, in 2 Corinthians 9, he's drawing on principles based on what he said in the previous chapter, which we just read, about how the churches like Philippi had given to him. But in verse 6, he makes a, the, he gives the principle of sowing generously or sparingly. Sowing and reaping. And note the use of the language here. It's, it's sowing and reaping. It's not giving, it's sowing. And it's not receiving, it's reaping. Right? That kind of language, when it's talking about money, it, it's, it's an awareness that, that these aren't just things we do. These are things we're doing as part of God's economy, right? That God is, God is running this thing. And when I give, it's not just giving, it's sowing. And that when I receive, it's not just, it's not just some, uh, some secular consequence. It's, it's God causing me to reap out of something that I've sown. And what do I do with that? And how is he doing that? Right? We, we live in an enchanted world and, and he rewards people accordingly to how generously they gave. And in verse seven, he talks about giving freely and not under compulsion as he decided in his own heart, not reluctantly. And in verse eight, he says that for the one who is generous, he says in verse eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Again, notice all the superlatives in that. All grace, all sufficiency, all things at all times, every good work. Paul is saying, there's not going to be any lack. And that's very similar to Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But what does this look like in God's economy? What does God supplying all sufficiency at all th- in all things at all times, what does it look like? Look at 2 Corinthians 9.10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Now, who... Who is it that supplies seed to the sower and bread for food? Who is that? Sunday school answer. Jesus. God. God is the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. So he, God, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Notice it does not say that God would multiply their seed for saving but there's seed for sowing. In other words, God is, yes, supplying, God supplying all of your needs is a promise that you can trust that God's provision for all your needs is not just for you, but so that through you, he can continue to meet the needs of other people. The way he said it to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.28 is, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
Scripture never calls us to build bigger barns. In fact, the only time we have that idea is in a quite negative context. But all that we've been given is to supply, yes, what we need, not what we want, but what we need, and so that we can be generous to other people. And in that way, we grow stronger in our love of God and for other people, and, it, and, and we grow weaker in our love of money. That's just how that works. So Paul thanks the Philippians for their gener- generosity in this way, and he urges them to continue in this way. But we need to consider quickly his final words as we close, and we're going to have a goodly amount of time to talk around our tables. So greetings in Christ Jesus and from Caesar's household. Uh, we don't need to linger long here. These are just the final closing words, but Paul warmly greets them uh, in closing, reminding them of their kinship in the gospel. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And we have spent a long time talking about how important that kind of phrase and language is to Paul. Paul saying uh, in chapter 2 that uh, I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. So he greets every saint, and every saint is in Christ Jesus like this. Every saint. Uh, that, that, that is New Testament code for every believer. Every believer is a saint, right? So reminding them of their kinship in Christ and in the gospel. And in verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. It's an interesting phrase that you might remember what he said back in chapter 1 when he said in chapter 1, verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard or praetorium and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And here, here in, at the end of the letter, he's basically saying the believers in Caesar's household say hello. What is Caesar's household? Is he saying like Caesar's nephew says hi? What's he saying in his household? That don't don't get too excited, but it is a good thing. Caesar's household um, had a very wide connotation. It wasn't like those you know who are who are in the living room together at Christmas time. It's 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 basically Caesar's household was like anybody involved in the civil service in in Caesar's government, right? So a lot of people like to point to these things and try to pinpoint where Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. Was he in Ephesus, like I do believe, or was he in Rome? Is that what is meant by Caesar's household or somewhere else? I don't think this tells that story. Um, But I think whether it was Rome or Ephesus or somewhere else, it does indicate, even though it's not just those in the living room at Christmas time, but anybody in Caesar's government, it indicates that the gospel was going there. It indicates that 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 uh, the, the, not just the gospel is going there, but believers. They're saying, hello, people in Caesar's government had come to saving faith in Christ. So the letter ends with this hopeful outlook on the success of the gospel in the world. And then his final words of, are a blessing that the Lord would be with them. And in that way, Paul ends this letter. I love this letter because there's just so much real life in it. I mean, he mentions people by name, Epaphroditus, even people who have real problems to solve, like Euodia and Syntyche, but they never thought they would be in the Bible forever and ever. Um, he, he gives them things, hey, thanks for that money you sent me. This is real life, you know? But in the middle, he just reminds them of the beauty and the truth of 
the gospel in Christ, that, that he can have a righteousness that's just not his own, and all the righteousness that he thought he once had is just trash compared to the righteousness that he has in Christ. So it's just such an encouraging letter. And in every chapter, it seemed like the emphasis seemed to stay on joy in Christ and persevering faithfully in him. And I pray that God would use this letter to produce that in us.